in in our careers, and, and part of it's that I'm in academic medicine, and he's just starting practice. But um, and we're at the beginning. We're we're right. young in the scheme of things for yeah. physicians, not for so sure, much yeah. else in life. But for physicians, we're young, um, and so. Uh, we're, we're still going, right? Like we're not, Absolutely. and so I think that um, for, for me personally, it is just seeking God's direction um, in everything in yeah. work. Like to, like you, go, I'm in a place right now in my work where I'm like trying to seek direction for what's my next step yeah. in my research, what's my next step in my career, right. which direction do I go, how do I make this, and I am fully turning to God on that because I, I, like I mentioned before, yeah. he's so clearly and like, without question, opened doors and closed doors. And yeah. so I know mm -hmm. that he has guided me through this maze of life to get me where I am today for a reason and um, trying not to trust my, or rely on my own thoughts of where my career should be or would be, yeah. um, but instead kind of going with the flow of what Christ Christ's ultimate goal for me is. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what that is. Um, yeah. I have ideas, but I don't, you know, like we don't know for real. Right, um, right. And, and, and for me, what that has looked like on a practical level, um, even in like med school, for example, when everyone is, you know, your head is in the books constantly and studying nonstop and you have all these exams. And, um, I remember with church, people would be like, Oh my God, I can't go to church because I, I have to study, you know? Right. And, um, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm thankful that I managed to kind of keep this perspective, but I always said, God will never punish me for taking two hours to go to church. Right. And so like I made that even throughout medical school, throughout Throughout residency, like if even if we were post call, so that just means like we just stayed up for 24, 36 hours. Yeah. If church was that next morning, we went to church because um, that we needed that community, we needed that like yeah. you know the educate, we needed the whole, we needed to keep Christ in the center and as a priority so that He could guide our steps outside of Sunday morning yeah. or Wednesday night or Friday night in New York or you know whatever. Like it was. And that wasn't easy. That, that I'll tell it's you. Not how. easy. So yeah. when I was studying for my step one, which is our boards, just uh, something you study, you take during your second or third year of medical school. Um, part of me wanted to skip church on those Sundays, yeah. and I had someone in my ear the whole time <laughs> yeah. saying, "No, this is a priority. Right. Be attentional about it. This is something that, uh, like you said, you know, God is not going to punish you." Uh, for for doing that right? right so because God has guided you this far right uh, it's important to maintain that part of your life for your sanity right, right. so yeah. uh, well, it's similar yeah. to not skipping a workout in a way yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah I actually got more energy exactly, yeah, exactly. by working exactly. out yeah. exactly. opposed to thinking it's gonna deplete yeah. more, exactly more exhausted exactly That's yeah. awesome. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Chris Pate. I'm the lead pastor here. I've been gone a couple weeks in Israel. So, Boker Tov, Shalom. Schnitzel is German, but there you go. We had some of that. And so, we had a good time. If you ever want to go, talk to G right here. And uh, we'd love, to, love for you to join us. A uh, couple things. We are still in our series. We're wrapping up our series today called Don't Waste Your Work. Right there with that clip, that short about three-minute clip, you can get the whole clip on YouTube. If you check out our channel, we've got about 30 minutes so you can hear Faith and Ugo, who are both physicians, talk about their work and how they're not wasting their work and how they give their work to the Lord as physicians. And so we'd love for you to check that out and all of our wonderful interviews and those that have helped. Hey, before we get into the message today, I want to give a few shout outs. Uh, number one, Scott Fiddler, the Scott Fiddler. Um, Texas Hammer, Scott Fiddler. 
Uh, he's not Texas Hammer. You're better than that. And so uh, Scott Fiddler is amazing, amazing. Did a great job a couple weeks ago. Thank him so much for stepping in. And not hard. To, as a trial lawyer, this is just like giving a trial. Um, and so, uh, and secondly, my wonderful, amazing wife, Casey Paint, who spoke last week. And uh, she's actually running to try to go home right now to get our kids. We've had one sick, and so we're trying to try to get them to church and stuff because we don't waste church. And so, uh, uh, but we're, we're working on that. So she's out, but I, I know she did an awesome job. She was like, thanks, Chris, for letting me work on Mother's Day. And so uh, I love you, honey. And so she's awesome. And her letting me go to Israel and staying back and doing all the things, it says something about our marriage, good or bad. So there you go. She's, she's awesome. Uh, maybe not me, but the last thing, real quick, I just want to give kind of an update, is we've reached our goal. Gosh, thank you guys so much. Just in two weeks, we've been able to raise about $4,000 for kids to go to camp, so money's not an issue at all, which is so huge, and so we're able to even invite some kids that aren't a part of our church to be able to come with us, and their parents don't have to worry about it. As you know, just youth camp's such a great experience, and so thank you so much for your generosity. I know you loved the lemonade. I mean, come on. I told them they're going on Shark Tank. It's the best lemonade ever. Apparently, uh, we're killing the game, so they're doing a great job, and so thank you so much for your generosity. we such a generous people, and we are very thankful. So I want to wrap up our series uh, today called Don't Waste Your Work. It's not the last time we're going to talk about work, obviously, because it's such an integral part of our lives. It's a third of your life of what you're going to do. And what we've been talking about in our quick recap, especially if you haven't been here, is the fact that because you'll spend about a third of your life working, you should not waste it, as in just working for yourselves or just for the weekend or purposeless, but that God actually has a call for your work. That we're not all called into ministry like my staff is maybe, but everyone's called to minister. And everyone in your work and using the gifts and the talents and the treasures and the abilities that you've given, college students, all the way up to those who are retired, you have a job and something to accomplish that gives you purpose. And ultimately, when we give that back to Christ, we don't want to compartmentalize our life into my, my family, my kid, here's my, my work, whatever it is. But we are a whole people living holistically. And God wants all of us because he wants to use every part of our lives. And so that's what we've been talking about by saying, don't waste your work. Now, there's something I know about you, because I know about me, and it's evident in our culture, is that we love story in our culture. We love, 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 love story. How many of you guys have a Netflix account? Yep. Amazon Prime, right? You got Hulu. Some of you still have cable TV. Like some of you need to cancel some things because it's all just coming together, right? They're coming out with the Disney, a new Disney one platform coming up. And then, of course, Apple is coming out with their own thing because they've just got to do their own thing. And so it's just, it's crazy how much we just need to be entertained. Feed me, see more. Like just constantly give me more and more narrative. And we know this so much because how many of you guys have seen Avengers Endgame? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Most of you have, whether you want to admit it or not. I think Henry, he's one of our staff. He's probably given about half of his money away just to see that movie. I love that guy. He's seen it so many times, right, Henry? And so uh, I don't know where he's at right now, three, four, five, whatever. Uh, is that five? Five times? Okay, God bless you, Henry. We love, 
We love narrative. We know this movie worldwide has made two and a half billion, with a B, dollars so far, right? And that says something about our culture. We love story. We need story. And it's not all bad, so I'm not here to condemn that. I think that's innate in us. I think within us, we love to watch a story because we realize we're a part of a story. And some of us don't like our own story right now. And so we've got to like, okay, what if I was Tony Stark, okay? We've got to live vicariously through those stories. And that's not all bad. Again, I think it's within our DNA, within how we're made up and how we're formed because you were birthed into a grand narrative and a story. The best storyteller I know was Jesus, and he came not just giving us a list of things to think about or characteristics of God, but he actually came and shared story, shared a lot of story, a lot of parables. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these letters explaining who Jesus was, you see in his teaching, he's constantly using these things called parables and sharing story with us. Today, I want to go through one of Jesus's parables. And one thing we know about Jesus, because a lot of people like Jesus. Not too many people I talk to, even atheists, like have a problem with Jesus. They more have a problem with the people that represent Jesus, because we don't always live up to what we claim. But not a lot of problems with Jesus. Like what a compassionate guy. That thinks, I mean, a man hanging on the cross that would cry out his last words, not only it is finished, but forgive them. They don't know what they do. How can you hate someone like that? And yet it's interesting because most people don't really actually read the things that Jesus said because some things he said, you might not like him as much. Like you love him and you should because of his actions or you like him because he helped the poor and he was against the man. And yet at the same time, if you really read the things that he taught, you would see, oh, that's why he died. Like his actions and healing and loving and forgiving were amazing. And yet his words were very controversial. And it's the words that got him killed. He wasn't like a Captain Kangaroo or a Mr. Rogers where you're just like, that would be the nicest person ever. How can anybody not like him, Right. He was dangerous. Some of the things he said was astonishing and shocking. And even within these stories, people would get outraged and upset and angry. I want to share with you one of those stories. Isn't that fun? Matthew chapter 25 is a parable that he talks about. And it's the kind of appropriate way for me to end this series and don't waste your work and really thinking about don't wasting, not wasting your life and ultimately giving your life to God because we will all be accountable one day. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He constantly had this rhetoric about the kingdom of God, that there is a king and, and we love the kingdom of God. Like we love the forgiveness and the graciousness and we love the kingdom of God, but we want a kingdom without a king. And Jesus comes in and says, yeah, you can't have a kingdom without a king. And he's going to tell us a little bit about the kingdom of God in this parable. So flip it up, turn it on, open your Bible, check out behind me Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to read through it. And then we're going to go back through it and really see what Jesus is saying. Matthew 25, 
Verse 14 and 19 through 19, it's a start. He says this, verse 14. For it, the kingdom of God, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter to the joy of your master. Verse 22. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Is this a good story so far? Man, it's powerful. These are the kind of stories I like. It's like, oh, this is, this is sweet. Like, oh, just, there's a lot of love and happiness and joy just thrown around. Good fruit is going on. People are making money and profit. This is good. Verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, Jesus. Jesus was an amazing storyteller. He had this way to kind of lure you in and go, oh man, the kingdom is like this. Or, oh, that parable, yeah, I know where it's going to happen. And then he flips it. 
See, because Jesus, as a king, knowing the kingdom and knowing the Father, understood and had a worldview that's very different from ours. And he exposes so much within this context. I don't know which person you can relate with. Maybe if you're a boss in here, you can relate with the master and like, yeah, man, I got some good employees, but that one dude. Maybe if you're one of the employees that's doing really good and things are working out, you're like, man, yeah, I've got a great job. and Really enjoying it. Things are just going up and up and up to the right. Maybe you're kind of the one person you feel like everybody's beating you down and everybody else and all these achievers and you're sitting here going, man, I can't do anything right. It's my boss's fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. See, we can easily, all of us in some capacity, relate with one of them. I think it's super easy in our culture to relate with the last person the most because we all know and we're all comparing ourselves through social media or whatever with someone else who's a high achiever, who's killing the game, who's doing awesome. And we could easily say, well, I can't do that. I mean, I'm not that level of achiever. And we can easily look at the master and go, that dude's a jerk. I don't think that's the intent of the parable. I want to look at it and see what is Jesus trying to say? What is he trying to portray? What is he getting at in teaching this parable? And what can we learn about not wasting our lives, much less our work, with Jesus's point of view on life? Let's start back from the beginning. Matthew 25, 14 says this. For it, it, remember, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will be like, again, will be future. Here's what's happening. It's going to be like a man going on a journey. Okay, so we have a man. If you look at kind of a parallel translation in Luke chapter 19, it's a noble man. And you have a man going on a journey. He's on a mission. He's doing something. He's trying to accomplish something. And it says, he called his servants, and I love this, he entrusted to them his property. So if we slow down and read it and just start, like, is this a good boss or a bad boss? It's not a trick question. It's a good boss. Why? Because He's journeying. He's got a mission. He's got a calling. He's using his own property, his own money, his own finances, and entrusting it to people. Some of you guys would kill for a boss like this. Like you have a boss that is not wanting to give you anything, maybe wanting to hold you back from things. And you're like, no, you can trust me. And he doesn't feel like he can trust you or he's all about himself. He's actually coming in, the master's coming in and he's just taxing you and asking you, give me, give me, give me, give me. See, the people listening in this culture at the time, Rome was constantly coming to them and as their master, Asking and demanding for upwards of some theologians think 70 to 80% of their money for taxes. Give me, give me, give me. That's the kind of master. See, that's the picture they're thinking of. But this master's coming out of his wealth, entrusting to them. Here, I have an abundance. Here, do something with it. Here, I believe that you can take this even to another place. And I'm entrusting you with it. See, right away... We should think Genesis chapter 1. 
God creates, he works, and then he makes people, and he says, multiply. Like all of the things that are created, all of the stuff, I'm now entrusting to you to rule and to steward it. Make it better. Make it great. I've put so much into the soil and the land and what could come out of, go for it. That's a good master. That's awesome. That's good leadership. That's someone I would want to follow who has everything and wants to share it. Look at this, verse 15. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. What else do we find out about this master? Not only is he generous, not only is he on, on a mission and he's including me in this journey, in this mission, and pulling me in, ultimately saying, you, I trust you, you can do something with this. Now, he knows me. Like, he knows that you have the ability to do five, and you could do two, and you could do one. And listen, it's not because I'm unjust that, well, you're better than you, or you're better than, no. I just know you and your abilities, and I'm not going to put more on you if you can only do one talent worth, which by the way, a talent is not a gift or being able to juggle. Okay, a talent here is about roughly 20 years worth of wages earned through labor. And if he says, listen, I'm not going to give that person two because they're not going to be able to handle that. It would crush them or kill them. But I know them according to their ability. I'm going to give you one see what you do with it. I'm going to give you two because you have something different. I'm going to give you five. He knows each one of us and he knows us well enough not to crush us, but to help us. And then it says he went away. He left. In other words, like, again, I'm not going to micromanage you. I'm go, do, be fruitful, multiply with my stuff. Remember, verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once. Right away, you see why this dude was trusted with five. Right away, he's like, oh, I got this. Let's go. And, and I love this. Again, God distributes because he knows people's ability. How many, how many guys have ever played Monopoly? Yeah? Got some Monopoly players? How many guys have ever killed someone after Monopoly, right? Right? Right, 10 hours later, you're like, this is a stupid game, right? You're flipping over tables like Jesus, and it's like, this is dumb. I'm done with this. See, because in Monopoly, we're all handed out the same amount of money, and we start, like, with the dice, and, you know, you get the little dog, and if you're the thimble, you're weird, and so you, you have all of these things, but we're all starting on the same playing field. Yeah, that is not life at all, and the master knows that. Even here, it's not everybody is distributed evenly, but I know your bill. I know what you can do. And this is real life. Not everybody has the same experiences or opportunities, but the giftings, the time, the talent, the treasure that you have that God has put in you and entrusted to you that is ultimately his, he believes that you can produce something out of it. He would receive the five talents, went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. Wow. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground 
and hid his master's money. You learn something even right away about the character of each person. Because see, what you've been given and the gifts that you've been given, what you do with them actually ends up exposing and showing your character in the long run. In each of these circumstances, you see a little bit of the character of the first two, not looking at the amount that they've done, but the fact that they did something with it. The last person didn't even try for fear, at least according to him. He hid it. Now, after, I like this, a long time, so it's not just like a few weeks or even a month, maybe even just a year, like, okay, give me what's going on, like, you're accountable, let me know, because all of us could botch up, like, this type of opportunity, right? Maybe you make some investments that didn't go well, and then, gosh, and then we've all messed up, and if God just showed up after giving us one moment, like, gosh, but it says a long time, I'm able to look and establish and see your character, and I see, too, that I've done something with what I've given them, and I see one that hid. Again, this should take you back to Genesis 3. When the fall comes, Adam and Eve immediately hide from this generous, gracious father. So much so he goes, who told you you're naked? Where did you hear these things? Why are you hiding from me? How are you perceiving me that's different than before? Verse 20, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made my five talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. I'll say it again. I'll keep saying it until I die. It doesn't say well done, good and fruitful servant. It says faithful servant. Remember, we say it here all the time. My job is faithfulness. God's job is fruitfulness. My job is faithfulness. God's job is fruitfulness. When I make my job fruitfulness, I start to question his faithfulness, but I get it backwards. Because I'm looking at the results instead of being obedience-driven. I'm results-driven. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm looking for faithfulness. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. I love this. What a great, easy, understandable principle. God says, if you do really good with that little, I'm going to give you more. Like, Dusty, get those good little grades, right? And she's like, thank you, Chris. And I'm going to continue to increase you. Like, work, show yourself approved. Don't just be like, God, I just need that miraculous. The test is coming. Jesus, just insert it, right? Like, no, like, you're going to have to study. You're going to have to do a little bit of work. You're going to have to go. Sorry, Dusty, I love you. But you're going to have to do a little little bit in order to grow in the much. The only thing that grows by accidents is weeds and stickers. Like, everything else takes a little bit of effort and work. And God is watching, and he's looking at us to see how we're going to steward things. And he says, ooh, you've done good. I'm going to give you more. What a good God and what a smart God. That's how the kingdom of God operates. When we look at other people and say, I wish I had their stuff and what they did. And we easily judge people for having something or achieving something and not looking at what it took to get there. 
and realizing maybe I should just be faithful with what I have instead of be jealous about what somebody else has. And look what he says. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What is his joy? Not the prophet, but the joy of those people experiencing the multiplication and the purpose in the work and the life that they were living unto God and for him as a servant to a master, a good master, a gracious master. And he says, I want you to experience that kind of joy. You know, that joy you're feeling right now, that's what I want out of you. Maybe you're in kind of like a joyless job or something you're just like, I don't want to do this. But I guarantee probably something you've done, you've experienced that level of joy and you're just like, I want to do that forever. That's what God is talking about. I want, you to, I want you to have that kind of joy. Our God desires people that are joyous, not just laborers that are grievous and grumble. He says, enter my joy. And notice, we see the second one, that's the guy with two. Listen, notice, he says, Master, you deliver me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, oh, good job. Have you seen the guy with five? Notice that's not what he said. He actually says the exact same guy to the guy who produced quite a bit less. Because God's not interested in the bottom line results as much as the heart and the joy of the person that was obedient to what he was given. The stewardship that God wants in our life as a good, gracious master. Enter into the joy of your master. Now we've established this is a good boss to have. And this is a good master to have. And yet we get to the end and I think so much we hang up on, man, how could, how could that be? That doesn't sound like a good master to me. Maybe we're looking at it wrong. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew. Okay, whoa. What do you know about the master? Well, so far we've seen this dude's generous. Like he's giving. He's not just interested in, in like the amount of results, but in the obedience and the trust. And he wants joy for us. I knew you to be a hard man. Have you ever had somebody in your life, maybe a family member, hopefully not your spouse, maybe somebody in your workplace that no matter what you do, you can't change their mind about how they look at you? Maybe you had one thing that happened in your life and they will just not let it go and that's how you are all the time to them. Maybe even you've been super gracious, but they misinterpreted and didn't see it in the right way. And the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs would say this about that kind of person. It's easier to battle and win against a large city than to win over a brother who's offended. Because they already have this filter in the way they look at you. Because here's the thing. When it comes to God, the way you see God now affects the way you see people and then ultimately then affects the way you see yourself. If God is just this 
guy in the sky waiting to pounce on you if you do something wrong. Then you're going to look at people as against you and cynically. And as soon as something goes wrong, it's their fault. I just can't help. It's not my fault. It's them. It's them. And then I'm going to look at myself as the victim. But see, if God is a father and he's generous, I'm going to look at people as being generous and opportunity. God, be generous to them and give to them because now I look at myself and say, I need that kind of generosity. We all know people that have filters in their life and see the world in a certain way. And I would tell you that we need to look at this in light of that, and I'll prove it to you. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. You gave me this money, but you made me do the work. And gathering where you scattered no seed, you ain't doing nothing. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground here. You have what's yours. I considered your gift as nothing, so I did nothing with it because I don't consider you as anything. It's interesting because look at the response. But his master answered him, and I would say called him out. You ever had an argument with somebody and you're like, what you're thinking makes no sense. Because your actions, your behaviors are different than actually what you're saying. Look what he says. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew, here's the deal. I'm using your argument, bro. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've scattered no seed? If that's true, like if that's how you know and what you know about me, and that's what you're afraid of? He said, if that was true, then you would have out of that fear invested my money with bankers. And in my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. He said, if it was true that you were afraid of me, and you really thought that about me, you would have acted much more shrewdly out of fear because you know what I can do. So he's calling him out. Fear's not the problem, bro. You're wicked and you're lazy. Ouch. Like you're masking your real problem by pointing at me instead of looking at yourself. So take the talent, verse 28, from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. And immediately we go, dude, that ain't fair. But wouldn't you do that? If you knew somebody with a great portfolio and they were really good with their investments and what they did in life, Brando, you would probably go, I'm going to give that dude more, right? And the dude that squanders it or sitting on not doing anything, yeah, I'm going to you. I'm trusting you. This is just common. Doesn't mean for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. What does this say? The master, here's what he's saying. Listen, all of this is mine, and you that did extra with it, I'm not even asking for that back. It's yours now. What a generous guy. Not only did he invest in you with his own money, but now he's saying you get to keep all the profit. Wow. Because he's not interested. It's all his already. 
He's not interested in that fruit. He's interested in you. And you trusting him and you experiencing the joy of following a good, gracious master and not hiding under your own selfishness and pride. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is where they're going, man, okay, it's not very tolerant, Jesus. Like, how in the world could this gracious, loving, generous God cast this guy aside just because he messed up a little bit? Remember, Jesus gives other parables of people that squandered all the money on prostitutes and living, and he received them back. This is somebody who doesn't do anything in a complete waste of what God has given. This is someone who's always given the blame, who's always looking at everyone around them cynically. This is someone who has not been faithful, ultimately. This idea of outer darkness when we talk about hell, we talk a lot about fire and those metaphors, but fire always has some kind of light. This outer darkness is an interesting word that Jesus chooses to use because there's something powerful about darkness that breeds isolation. And I just, you know, I just want to be, I just want to, don't want any kind of accountability. I don't want anybody around me. I'm just going to isolate myself. Maybe think of in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you ever read the series, it's real powerful, the last book. It's called The Last Battle. And in the last battle, there's these dwarves that refused the whole time. They refused to fight for Aslan or for Tosh. And their rallying cry throughout all of the books is, the dwarves are for the dwarves. They're real cynical about their loyalty to any ruling party. Toward the end of the book, however, the dwarf's skepticism and isolationism eventually makes them unable to appreciate or value anything. You know anybody like that's so cynical? Everything is looked not through, looked at not through rose-colored glasses, but the opposite. In Aslam's terms, they are so afraid of being taken in that they are unable to be taken out. And listen to what Aslan says at the end about these dwarves. He says, you see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. I think this is the picture of outer darkness. And it's not a picture of God just saying, I'm done with you. But the God of the universe who knows you're in from the beginning, knows you're not going to be won over, ultimately gives you what you want. Isolation. You want me not to bother you? You want to hide from me? Okay. I'll give you the desires of your heart. And it would be the opposite of a loving God to force relationship. 
to force intimacy. Instead, he says, just like Aslan, they're so afraid to be taken in, they cannot be taken out. What a picture of this last steward. Here's my final thoughts and three sentences that I want you to think about. In view of God's mercy, the gracious master, here's what we can learn from this. Your life is a stewardship. You're not an owner of your own time, treasure, your talent. It's not yours. Everything is given to you. There's no such thing as a self-made man or woman. That's crazy. You inherited something. You were given someone some kind of gift or talent that God is ultimately the owner of. You're a steward. Your life is a stewardship. It's temporary. The king will return. And you will give an account. The account is either, not again, the amount, but laying it back his feet, the life that he gave you, you'll give an account for what you did on this earth. And that's a sobering thought. So much so, I, I want you to make this personal. And I want you to just help me out. Repeat this after me. My life is a stewardship. It is temporary. I will give an account. There's purpose in your life. There's purpose in your work. And we see the end purpose is entering the joy of God. He wants your joy. He wants to, you, to give you joy and you to experience joy. But it's hard to do when I say the opposite. My life is my own. I take ownership. I got this. We act and live as if we're going to live forever. And ultimately, like we're not going to give an account to anybody. But Jesus promises us we've got a gracious master. So much so he would send his son to live the life you should have lived and ultimately give account on your behalf, but not so that you can squander it and say grace, but so that you can say grace. And now I'm going to live this life unto you. I'm going to do everything I can. The words of my mouth with the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, oh God, because he deserves it. Will you stand to your feet? We're going to close by singing the song, Jesus at the center of it all. And not just as a song, something we sing, but as a prayer, God, be the center of my life. Will you bow your head, close your eyes with me, and just take a sober moment and where you are in your relationship with God. Where are you? Knowing that your life is a stewardship. Your work, your family, everything that has been given to you is a stewardship. Because God is entrusting these treasures with you because he believes you can do great things and he wants you to experience that joy. But it's temporary. You will give an account. 
Are you ready to give an account? Are you ready? Say, God, here's my work. Here's my family. The only way we'll be ready to do that and stand before him is if we don't make Jesus just a priority, but a center. Be the center of my wealth, the center of my job, be the center of my life.